Chapter Ten of Upper Canada Sketches by Thomas Conant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. I looked and thought the quiet of the scene an emblem of the peace that yet shall be, when o'er earth's continents and isles between the noise of war shall cease from sea to sea, and married nations dwell in harmony, when millions crouching in the dust to one no more shall beg their lives on bended knee nor the black stake be dressed nor in the sun the o'er-laboured captive toil and wish his life were done the civil war in the united states broke out in april eighteen sixty one and indirectly exerted much influence on canada from eighty thousand to one hundred thousand of our young men who were sympathizers with the north went from ontario and quebec to join the northern army these canadian recruits all received bounties at first usually eight hundred dollars on enlisting and then as the struggle went on receiving as high as sixteen hundred dollars the war created a large demand for produce of all kinds and the northern states bought everything we had to sell giving high prices the farmer and other producers became wealthy and to quote the usual expression the times were good this fratricidal war had more men engaged in it more horses more ships more mules and more money than any war the world had yet ever known as to numbers xerxes is allowed to have had the greatest army hitherto known his force numbering one million of men when he crossed the hellespont to conquer greece but when the North disbanded its armies at the termination of the war in 1865, they had 1,250,000 men of all kinds under arms or on the roll. The South had 800,000 men. We do not compare their navies of that day, of course, with the peerless navy of Her Majesty. By their fight of ironclads at Hampton Roads, Virginia, in 1864, however, they revolutionized the naval architecture of the world. When the war was at its height, I visited the armies. Gold had been abounding upwards week by week as the protracted struggle went on. Its daily rise whetted the edge of our appetites, keen to the main chance of money-making. I was then just a young man, fresh from college, but I felt that a truly golden opportunity was passing by us day after day we read of the advance of the federal army and of its repulse by the confederates more especially in virginia and then again of its successes and likewise the talk of louis napoleon being about to recognize the belligerency of the south we who were that day upon the scene as it were even if not in the actual conflict felt the blows as they were struck with all the terrible force of war's ravages and honestly did not know how to make up our minds as to the final success of either side i resolved to see for myself the contending armies and then judge as well as i could from a ramble among both parties as to the ultimate result well about june eighteenth eighteen sixty four having secured my father's consent i set out to inspect for myself down to new york i made my way and looked about the great metropolis of america to find some signs of the depression of war upon the north but i saw nothing to lead me to suppose for an instant 
that the drain upon the country was at all severe. In those days there was no Coney Island as we now know it. Indeed, I recollect going down there upon the sand dunes, and finding only a board shanty of a restaurant where they served baked clams. And these were only forty cents per plate in those days of inflations. That price was no kind of bar to me, with plenty of British and American gold in my pockets, for even then, before the premium had got to bounding up, my greenbacks only cost me about thirty-eight cents on the dollar. So you see, even baked clams, and the best hotels in New York of that day, were at my command for a very small outlay. At Philadelphia I encountered no sign of war, but the great city on the Schuylkill was booming on its way. Baltimore seemed just a little off, and many of the people appeared to be rather sulky. Still there were no signs of reverses or oppressions, and so far war had not, to outward appearances, seriously hurt the North. Washington I found during the last days of June the gayest of the gay. What struck me most forcibly was the extreme freedom in and about the city. Go anywhere I could and did, and no one seemed disposed to say me nay. In and out of Congress I went at will, as well as into the departments of the secretaries. More than that, I rode on horseback some three or four miles southeasterly from the city to the great military hospitals. Some of these were mere structures of boards, others large field tents, others again had board tops and tent sides. I walked at will among the rows of cots, and there saw suffering in its acutest forms. Soften the heart? Aye, the quest of gold upon which I first set out from my Canadian home was forgotten for the time in the presence of this suffering. Young fellows, many of them, were lying there by the hundreds, so pallid and wan, and scarcely lifting eyes to look at the passer-by. Even after this lapse of time, I vividly remember thinking of the mothers of these young lads in far-off homes in the north, waiting so hopefully and wistfully for their son's return. In addition to the wounded in battle, many of the poor fellows were suffering from fevers, but to me it was all suffering, and this at last was war. Such scenes as these, harrowing though they were, mark the great distinction between the savage and the civilized. Civilized, we care for our wounded and sick, savage the infirm and helpless are left to die board shanties and with board roofs mean as they were architecturally quote, i know they were holy things that from a roof so sacred shine where sounds of the beat of angels wings and footsteps echo all divine their mysteries i never sought nor hearkened to what science tells for oh in childhood i was taught that God amid them dwells. Naturally, serviceable material for army recruits was looked after most keenly in Washington at this time. Walking along the new asphalt sidewalk, in heat so great as to melt the asphalt so that it left the footprint of my steps upon it, an officer wanted to know if I would like to enlist. His first offer was $800 in money down and I have no doubt the offer would have gone up to $1,600 quite if I had been so disposed. But my quest was gold and not military glory, 
and consequently I declined the offer. I made, too, a visit to Lincoln at the White House during the last days of June 1864. No one for a moment questioned my right to enter. A challenge I did not hear. Within the doors of the White House, at the foot of the main stair, sat an attendant upon a plebeian three-legged stool reading a novel. Not a soldier nor a policeman in sight, and I was free apparently to go where I chose. "'In which room is the president?' I asked of the novel-reading attendant. First room upstairs to the right.' I went up and saw the great man in the room indicated. Feeling that I had no kind of right to intrude upon a man so weighted down with cares as President Lincoln was at that period of the war, I remained long enough to allow his image, as he sat facing me, to be imprinted on my memory, never to be obliterated. My first thought was, what a tall, awkward man, and how badly his clothes fit. One arm lay upon the table beside which he sat, and the other upon the arm of his chair. I could not, however, bring myself to leave without an interview with the President. On my card being handed him, he ceased talking for a moment with his visitor, some man from Missouri, and through the open door asked me in and told me to be seated, and he would soon be through with the business on hand. Thus involuntarily I learned the nature of the business of the gentleman from Missouri, which seemed to be to importune the president to order the release of a number of guerrillas who had been committing depredations in the southwest. After a lot of words from the Missourian, Mr. Lincoln said if he would give him, quote, any real good reason why these men should be liberated, end quote, it would be done. The conversation continuing, I thought it my part to retire. As I left the room, the President sat with fixed gaze, apparently absorbed in thought, and so preoccupied as not to notice my departure. While disappointed of my interview, I had seen and spoken with the man whose figure stands out in clear and massive outline on the canvas of American history, and I remember this with pardonable pride and satisfaction." A pass was granted me to go wherever I chose, in Virginia, or about the vicinity of Washington. How I got this pass I cannot even now, after thirty-two years, tell. Some of the persons who assisted me to obtain this great favor are yet alive. Not all of them, it is true, but I would be manifestly unwise to tell any more on this point. Being a Canadian, I may freely say, gained me the coveted pass when backed up with some seals of officialdom from our own Canada. More I cannot, dare not say, only that this pass lies on my writing desk beside me as I write these lines. Without delay I set out to cross the Potomac, mounted upon a horse hired from a Washington livery stable. It was when entering the long bridge as the wooden structure of two miles in length over the Potomac then was called, that I first showed my pass. My first thought upon gaining the Virginia shore was of the terrible barrenness and bleakness of the country about. There were no roads, no fences, no buildings, no woods, but just a mass of the lightest and meanest red dust one ever could conceive of, dust quite four inches deep, 
so that of necessity I rode in a perfect cloud and had to canter sharply to get away from it. To describe the ride to the Army of the Potomac would take too long, and there is really nothing worthy of much note until I got to the Army itself. At the camp every courtesy was shown me, and then I saw what few persons now alive at this time ever saw, and that was ninety thousand men encamped in tents and under arms. It would be useless for me to try to describe this vast army. Its very magnitude was too great for the mind to grasp. Men I saw, and men, and still men, everywhere and all about. There literally seemed to be no end of them, and the idea then formed itself in my mind that this great armed mass of humanity must and would conquer the South. I prize my visit to the Army of the Potomac under General Grant as one of the greatest and most interesting experiences of my life. As to the Army, I cannot well speak from the knowledge I then had, but I certainly got the impression when walking among the miles and miles of streets with canvas houses at the sides that there was no want, that everything needful was served to these men in the fullest extent and of the best. The cavalry, I remember, lay off some little distance from the infantry, and such a mass of horse and mule flesh it has been the lot of but few to see. Some twelve thousand horses, I think, were in the camp not the least restraint was placed upon me but i was free to go where and when i listed while at almost every officer's mess i was a welcome guest great good nature was the order of the day and it was indeed a gay scene with the regimental bands and bright colours and the pomp and panoply of war as to visiting the confederates i was assured that a flag of truce would easily put me over but I began to think I had seen as much of the military as my brain, uneducated in military matters, could take in, and consequently, not wishing to stay my welcome out too far, and fearing a movement on the part of the army, I began the ride back to Washington. When within a few miles of Longbridge, and in plain sight of the capital and Washington itself, on looking back, a great cloud of dust seemed to be coming up, as if trying to overtake me from the direction I had come. I was startled, of course, but I halted, and before half an hour had elapsed, along came the most confused mass of humanity one could think of, men on foot, on cannons, on mules, on horses, some with guns, some without, but all bowling along for Washington in the fastest possible time. I found they were going into Washington to defend it, having heard that General Jubal Early, of the Confederates, had crossed the Potomac at Williamsburg, above the city, and was about to make an effort to cut off communication with the North. It would perhaps be superfluous to add that after this information my horse sped as fast as any of them, and over Long Bridge the rescuers and I went pell-mell into Washington." This was on the 6th of July, 1864. The city naturally was all excitement. Men and cannon, horses and ambulances, seemed to be moving along all the streets. Washington at this turn of affairs had the appearance of a huge military camp. On returning my horse to the livery stable, 
my first thought was for food and a bath both of these i obtained at the hotel the landlord of which informed me that i could not get out of the city by the trains they being closely guarded at four o'clock i came with my grip to the baltimore depot and did indeed find it guarded by blue coats stepping up to one of the men i asked for the captain of the guard he came when i asked him to let me get on the baltimore train he quietly shook his head and turned away then and not till then i called him back to look at my pass a wonderful change instantly followed his hand came to the salute the necessary order was given the guard their bayonets were raised to the salute and i walked through a row of glittering steel to the railway platform this as i have said was at four in the afternoon the next train left at six for baltimore general franklin was on the latter train when general early's scouts stopped it and took him off on my train there was no trouble i easily got to baltimore and for these thirty-two years i have been curious to know what the confederates would have done with me had they caught me on the train with general franklin the conclusion i have arrived at is that they would have taken my money if they had had time for the union cavalry was after them hot and then let me go to pursue this narrative a little further i at length arrived at elmira new york and saw the confederate prisoners in a camp about a couple of miles south of the town their prison was only a field of some ten acres surrounded by a tight board fence about ten feet high on which guards were placed at intervals within were houses for the prisoners without any difficulty i was allowed to walk upon the platforms at the fence top and see the prisoners as long as i would the same freedom was given me here as i had enjoyed in the white house in the army in the great hospitals and in fact everywhere and this too during one of the most terrible wars the world has ever seen as to the prisoners there were some two hundred of them standing about in groups many of them smoking listening to some talker in each group spinning yarns to my astonishment they did not all wear the confederate gray but many had butternut-colored jeans and among the lot there was scarcely a well-dressed man so far as i could judge they were not feeling their imprisonment very badly and i noticed that when the officer of the guard was absent they talked and joked quite freely with the guards upon the fence keen-eyed sharp-looking fellows they were and generally quite young men at this time in my life i had not seen europe with its fuss and feathers and could not draw the comparison which i now can but i can conscientiously say now having been under almost every flag in the world that america canada of course as well being the greater part of america is preeminently a land of freedom first last and always going on to chicago i remember i sold gold to pay my expenses one dollar for two dollars and eighty-six cents in greenbacks think of two dollars eighty-six cents for one of our dollars now was the time i felt to buy the bonds and i was fully alive to the opportunity my father and i on looking over the situation 
concluded we could put two hundred thousand dollars of our money into united states currency now this sum at the premium of two dollars and eighty six cents would have given me at a jump five hundred seventy two thousand dollars yes but again the seven thirties and the five twenties as the bonds of those days were called were sold so low and so much depreciated that one dollar of greenbacks would buy three dollars in bonds or thereabout as i now remember thus my five hundred seventy two thousand dollars would have given me in bonds one million seven hundred sixteen thousand dollars which is another jump so big as to almost take one's breath there is yet more to tell for after the war was done these very same bonds soon sold at an average of thirty per cent premium of course i am justified in adding this premium that would amount to five hundred fifteen thousand eight hundred dollars to my bonds in calculation which would give me two million one hundred thirty one thousand eight hundred dollars these are the millions i had in view all the time i was in grant's army when looking about to form an opinion i never wavered for an instant in my faith and i knew all the time that the north would conquer if louis napoleon but kept his hands off and did not aid the south of the pluck of the south and their heroic efforts which only anglo-saxons can and will make it is not for me to speak in this article older men and men educated in military affairs told me as i met them in washington attached to the embassies that the north must and would win and that the god of battles would be on the side of the heaviest ordnance why i did not buy the bonds it is now necessary for me to tell to complete this tale my paternal great-uncle lived in our family home he having been born in massachusetts in seventeen eighty six and coming away with my own forefathers from that state to upper canada before things got quieted in new england after the war of the revolution he had retained a most vivid recollection of every turn of that most unfortunate struggle as told him at his mother's knee among the relics which my forefather brought from massachusetts was a deerskin covered saddle-bag with a brass ring in each end to fasten to the horse this old saddle-bag was octagonal in shape and was made in london england in seventeen nineteen it was used as a receptacle for papers from new england dating mainly before the revolution and as far back as seventeen twenty within this pile of papers in a roll was a large quantity of money paper money of different denominations and made at the various periods of the war first i remember were shilling notes then notes for pounds and as the war went on notes for dollars from my earliest boyhood i had fingered these notes and played with them but never until this year eighteen sixty four did i realize that at one time they meant just that much money to my forefather to our scheme the paternal uncle listened and took it all in yes he understood about buying the bonds just as well as i did and freely admitted the opportunity to be a good one then arousing himself as if from a fright he asked me to go and get the continental money which i quickly did fondly he looked it over 
and passed the notes between his fingers, soliloquizing to himself. No, boy, he said presently, they didn't pay these, and they may not pay their bonds now, and better let well enough alone and not touch them. My uncle's decision settled the matter. The bonds were not bought, and thus I lost the chance of becoming a multimillionaire at a bound, a chance the like of which never may occur again. End of chapter 10